The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at the revelations in this week's COVID inquiry, asking if Israel's attempts to wipe out Hamas will be achievable, and learning about the curious world of social media dating blacklists. First up, the COVID inquiry has reached a dramatic stage this week with the likes of Dominic Cummings, Lee Kane and Martin Reynolds giving evidence. We can hear an excerpt of Dominic Cummings' testimony, which has been making most of the headlines. Unfortunately, a large part of how the system works is that ministers parade up Downing Street, the cameras click, people act like cabinet is actually deciding things, but everyone behind the number 10 door actually near power knows that that's very rarely actually what's going on. In his cover piece for the magazine this week, Carl Hennigan, Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford and Director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, says that the Hallett Inquiry is asking all the wrong questions. He joins me now, along with Tom Whipple, Science Editor at The Times. Professor Hennigan, I wondered if you could start by summarising for our listeners why this COVID inquiry is, in your view, such a missed opportunity and what is it getting wrong in its general approach? Well, I think you've hit the the sort of nail on the head there by learning lessons. At the moment, what we seem to be doing is sort of enthralled by WhatsApp messages, COVID diaries, obscene languages, profanities, who's calling who what, in what context. And I consider all of that as a sideshow. If you're looking for a fall guy, that's not what we're here to do is to learn lessons about because the government's going to move on. The advisory system has moved on. And what what really I'm getting huge messages about is people want to understand why we're locked down. What are the issues in terms of the benefits and harms? And should we ever lock down again? What about should we spend 37 billion on test and trace program? Did it actually deliver its remit or actually was it a huge waste of time? And particularly if you think about what we focused on was modeling and modeling drove much of the response is that an appropriate way given its history of getting it wrong a way forward or should we choose a different path which i think we should based on evidence and data and unpick some of the issues that need to be discovered like was the testing appropriate what about the problems in care homes what about all the hospital acquired infection where were the excess deaths where was that a problem and what were the drivers these are the questions we need to get to my experiences that was thrown really out out of the window when i went to give oral evidence and actually wasn't the agenda at hand it seems to be that they've come to an assumption about what worked and what didn't and then it's trying to prove who was right and who was wrong hmm. well professor hennigan your 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 experience in front of the inquiry as you describe it in the paper seems to suggest um uh, as you said just then that that it the problem goes beyond just a kind of obsession with uh, trivialities uh, that there's actually, as you saw it, a sort of I- ideological bent with some of the questioning, that that um, there's assumptions already in place about what worked or what didn't. Um, I wondered why you think that might be the case with the inquiry. Is it just a case of, of groupthink? 
Well, look, Sage has over 200 advisors that it can call on and has used in the pandemic. Yet come September the 20th, the Prime Minister, the Chancellor decided to go with, look for an alternative view and invited myself, Professor Sinetra Gupta and Professor Anders Tegnell from Sweden to meet with him over Zoom in, in 10 Downing Street. And what that was about was trying to provide an alternative view about how you look at the evidence and data and how you look at intervening or not as a case. Now, you'd think within that, the fact that you've got these people who have a different viewpoint and you bring them in and say, look, what was their viewpoint? Where was he coming from? What evidence was he using and what data? And I thought that's what I was going into the COVID inquiry. We had a list of 12 points and were to discuss. What I didn't understand was that I was walking into an arena where the environment was hostile and immediately it was like, you're the only person on the other side. We're only going to give you less than an hour. And in that hour, we're really going to try and take you down. And it started with about my record and trying to say I'm a generalist and therefore maybe I don't understand about medicine or healthcare, despite the fact that I'm the only professor of evidence-based medicine and an active clinician. I don't have a degree in maths or physics. I actually am in medicine, and medicine is a general issue. And so that assassination really carried on from the whole hour. And I just was in the room thinking, I am not going to get any points across here because these people are not interested in uncovering the truth, addressing the uncertainties, and trying to get to the lessons. And that puts you in a very difficult position. When you're under that pressure, what tends to happen is you've got to be careful. You don't lose it. You don't start to become defensive. And therefore, my position was to realize that time they're not listening. Therefore, what I've got to do is come away and do what we're doing now is start presenting the arguments in a different way. Try to get rid of all of this issue. They as I said, publish the WhatsApps and the diaries in full and get back to these main questions. And if we did that, I think even now it'd be start to become obvious in the evidence that people say, ah, there's an important lesson. And there are really important lessons that need to be learned. But actually, I can't even put one finger on one lesson apart from government should have an edict not to swear and use WhatsApp in the way they do that we've learned so far. And I think that's a huge loss given the amount of time being spent and the amount of money that's been spent on this inquiry. Tom, I'd like to bring you in, if I may. I wonder what what have you learned from the COVID inquiry this week? And do you agree with Professor Hennigan's uh, analysis that, that lessons about the pandemic are being overlooked in favour of trivialities over WhatsApp and, and other such uh, relatively small issues? I think what the, the lesson that I would definitely agree, the lesson we have learned that I think this is the last time that government is going to use WhatsApp in the way that it did, because it's it's completely apparent that everyone using WhatsApp was not under the impression that it would later be made public. Um, we are focusing on trivialities. Look, the, the UK, we, we, we talk a lot about the UK being world leading in, in different things. We are world leading in inquiries. We do uh, we do dozens of these things. We have several running concurrently now. We uh, we provide a lot of employment for lawyers around the world who also have families to feed. And if you look at the scope of previous inquiries, um, if we think of the inquiry that's closest to this, it was the Chilcot inquiry in terms of the breadth of the state it looked at. And obviously, I think most of us, if we're completely honest, cannot say what it found out. So there are reasons for scepticism about the inquiry. There is a definite focus on these 
trivialities. And, and to be frank, this is the module, the one looking to government preparedness, where we're getting all of the drama, we're getting all of the beefs and feuds and all of these other things. Um, I, my hope is that beyond that, it will investigate things properly and it has a lot of time to do so and there are things worth investigating these things are hard the worst possible outcome is if this retrospectively retrofits a perfect response to a virus we now understand so that if we ran covid again we would do it by whatever criteria ideological scientific or otherwise we deem best we would run the perfect covid response which of course would be completely useless next time a, a virus pops up. So uh, I think we, we have to we have to wait and see. I was relatively impressed with the first inquiry. I, I must say I wasn't in, in sympathy with Carl Hennigan. I, I didn't think that it, it was completely fair to you, you either invite someone along because you want to hear their views or not. And it did feel at points that there was that, that they weren't sort of really looking into those views. So I do, I do have some sympathy with that position. Hmm. Well, Professor Hennigan, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your experience uh, during the pandemic as a um, a dissenting scientific voice, uh, I suppose, is a way of describing it. I mean, you, you describe in your piece uh, this phenomenon which you call the silencing of science. So is this a, a wider trend that you see in the scientific community, perhaps uh, a trend that uh, goes beyond the pandemic response and into other areas as well? So just to say, um, I'm, I'm Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine in my day job in the University of Oxford, but I'm also an urgent care GP. That meant I had experience of going into care homes and people's home, own homes throughout the pandemic. So that gives me insight, allows me to look at the data, but also allowed me to triangulate what was going on the ground. It's incredibly helpful to talk to paramedics, my colleagues in hospital, what are you seeing, what's happening? And we were really interested in this disconnect between what was happening on the ground and the actual data. And therefore, throughout the pandemic, we produced lots of evidence. I wrote lots of articles in The Spectator trying to explain, because I think there's a huge appetite from the public to understand and be informed by the evidence. What's going on? Why are we making these decisions? What happened is, within that, is in the September the 20th, 2020, I was invited with Sinetra Gupta to speak with the with the prime minister and the chancellor of the exchequer about the strategy and i had a number of ups and goings within the government from september through to november but what happened then was something that i have never seen before there was uh, the government has had uh, surveillance on people including myself and that's come out in the big brother watch they put out websites there were articles about disinformation and there was a whole attempt to undermine those people who had dissenting views if you like not just me many of my colleagues as well like Sinetra, carol secura now i am a professor at the university of oxford you can, i can take it on the chin you know it's a bit stressful but it's that's not the point what happens to the message to people at the middle grade coming through if you put that much pressure on people if they speak against the status quo? You're basically undermining and threatening them with losing their jobs. And what happens is you see this self-censoring happening where people go silent. So I think what's happened in this pandemic, there are a huge number of people who have views on the other side. They're just too, now too scared to speak out. And that is a huge problem for science, because our job, science's job, 
is to debate and argue and reflect the uncertainties. And when there's genuine disagreement, work towards a basis where we can understand the other side and take forwards our own approaches with evidence. Now, this silence of science applies in the COVID pandemic, but I think it's a wider problem where we've got huge swathes of society who are self-censoring themselves because they're worried what will happen to them when they speak out. And they see what happens at the top and think, well, they can get away with it, but I can't and I will be under threat for my job. So I think we need a profession in universities and in the health system who should be able to and be rewarded when people, when they speak out. Tom, I wonder what you make of that. Do, do you have a sense that uh, dissent was um, repressed in some way during the pandemic? It's an interesting question. Have you certainly felt... You know, it was a, obviously it was a very high emotion time. I get told that there were things that we weren't allowed to write or say, and we got in trouble for doing so. And it doesn't reflect my personal experiences. I, I wrote something which I think was extremely fair to Sweden in the summer of 2020, and I don't recall getting abuse. I, I wrote before then about the extreme worries about the closure of schools, and again. There was a period which I found very strange, and we're talking about the quality of debate. So I would say the crucial period for decision-making was from probably September until December, when our hand was forced, or not forced, by the Alpha variant in 2020. That was after the initial panic, when we could stop and breathe and think. And one of the strangest things that I've ever experienced in my career happened during that period, where particularly you had members of parliament asking questions about the false positive rate of PCR tests, which was, I mean, you can get into the maths, but, but we knew by then, we, we'd done 100,000 tests one week and got 50 positives. So the false positive rate had to be vanishingly small. But this thing persisted, and, and it, it, was, it was as epistemologically wrong as sort of 2 plus 2 equals 5. But we sat there and we spent five months in so many ways with people who've been mentioned say, saying that, you know, there would not be a second wave, that this is all, all false positives. And we were effectively debating reality rather than policy. And I think that was a real shame. And I don't particularly know how we improve the quality of debate about technical things like this. Uh, well, finally, I'd, I'd like to ask a question to both of you, uh, starting with Professor Hennigan, if I may, which is, has there been anything in the COVID inquiry so far that has made you optimistic about how the country might handle a future pandemic? I mean, Lee Kane said yesterday that Johnson was wrong to canvass a diversity of views on lockdown. That made me almost fall off my chair and think, surely, if you're the prime minister, your job is to canvass a diverse arena of views. Second is, while I disagree with Tom's interpretation of false positive, that, that's not the point. What is really important is that people in politics, in the public, are starting to get a grasp of the, the, these important issues that affect the choices about diagnosis and treatment. That's key. And that's what we need to build on, is a public sense and our politicians are equipped and trained to ask the important questions. Because if you don't do that, I'm afraid what happens is you could end up without dissenters like China with policies that last three years and 
if you start to look at the data on China today about their excess mortality and what's really going on, you start to understand a world that doesn't have people who can speak out, who can go against the status quo. And in a democracy, that is incredibly important to have an evidence-based approach. And Tom, the same question? Um, I think, do I think the inquiry will help? Only around the margins. I think we have entrenched ourselves. It's become a yet another dividing line in society. I don't think views are going to be changed. Um, I don't think people are going to change. I think most likely we won't get a pandemic on this scale for a generation or more, hopefully. And um, the only lesson I would really like, which might just squeak through, is that we should find ways to test things. I really wish we'd ended the first lockdown by lifting the, for instance, the closure of schools in a staggered, randomised fashion. I think that summer could have been an opportunity to perform proper tests on masks. During the whole of the pandemic, there was one RCT that was powered, one randomised trial that was powered to actually find an effect of masks. And it found a marginal one in Bangladesh. I, I think probably given everyone in the world was using this, it would have been nice to have actually gathered proper data and there are ways to do this. And if you look at the things that we argue about most vociferousness, it is, of course, those things where the evidence is least. So that would be my hope. I think almost everything else we take away from our COVID experience will hit a different time and a different virus and be just as likely to be counterproductive as productive. Thank you, Professor Hennigan and Tom. Next, will Israel succeed in its stated aims? In the magazine this week, Hugh Lovett senior policy fellow at the European Council of Foreign Relations, argues that Israel has misjudged Hamas's growing support across the region and says that Israel will struggle to wipe the terrorist group off the face of the earth. He joins me now. Hugh, Israel has begun tentative steps, at least, in its much-anticipated ground offensive in Gaza. Do you think that Israel is realistic in its stated aims? It is not. There is absolutely no way that I can see that Israel can actually accomplish that goal of eradicating Hamas. Firstly, Hamas is not just Gaza. Hamas exists in the West Bank. It exists in South Lebanon. Its leadership is spread out across the Middle East. Israel has so far not given any indication that it will go after these targets. They may in the future, but not now. Now, when it comes to Hamas in Gaza, we need to remember that Hamas was born in Gaza under Israeli rule in 1987. It knows how to survive as a clandestine insurgent organization. So while I'm sure it will suffer tremendously over the coming weeks, the idea of being able to fully uproot it, I think, is a stretch, even when it comes to Gaza. So what level of victory do you think uh, could be claimed by Israeli politicians, by Netanyahu and so on? What kind of victory could be claimed as a political victory, given that these are the stated goals? There's two ways to look at it. Firstly, what does meaningful security mean for Israelis, especially Israeli communities, vulnerable communities that live near Gaza? That's a very difficult question to answer, because I fundamentally don't think there is sustainable security without sustainable political vision, political pathway. However, the second part of the question is political theatrics. So what does the Israeli government have to do to show the Israeli public and the international community that it has been able, in its view, to restore deterrence and to have dealt a severe blow to Hamas. And 
you know, I don't use these words theatrics lightly, given the, the horrendous suffering that we have seen. But this is how previous conflicts with Hamas have ended in the past. We've had three previous wars. Basically, each side needs to get to a position where they can claim victory. And this applies to the Israeli government. So I think ultimately it will be when, and this is again very crude, when the Palestinian death toll is high enough, especially the, the Hamas death toll is high enough, when the Israeli government considers that it's wrought enough destruction against Hamas, I think fundamentally that will be it. Now, I would add a caveat. If the Israeli government actually does intend to be much more transformative, which it has said, it talks about creating a new Gaza, about possibly a smaller Gaza, about, in reference to your first question, eradicating Gaza. I don't think it can do that or wants to do it, but if it does go down that pathway, then we're in a completely different scenario. And I think then we are in a very, very long and protracted war. Well, one of the big military challenges that you mentioned in your piece is Gaza's very uh, famous system of underground tunnels. I wonder if you could paint a picture for listeners who may not be aware of just how extensive this network of tunnels is and the type of difficulty that this will present to Israeli troops. So I'm going to let you down. I've never been to Gaza's tunnels. Very few people have. So a lot of our information is very much secondhand. And even I think Israeli intelligence themselves don't have a full picture. But based on what we do know and what we do understand, the Gaza tunnels are about 300 miles long. That's about the equivalent size, actually a bit bigger than the London Underground. So that is pretty extensive. They're very deep. I think about 230 uh, feet deep extremely intricate and they're not just tunnels in terms of as we might imagine it in terms of being able to crawl through although some of them are like that but you actually have much more substantial tunnels where you know according to some footage that Hamas has released you can actually drive a car through them so it's that kind of huge infrastructure and it it allows the movement of Hamas fighters not just to protect themselves from Israeli airstrikes it allows them to move around the strip in relative safety, hence the term Gaza Metro. It allows them to ambush advancing Israeli soldiers, but it also allows them to resupply. So there are tunnels that run under the Egyptian-Gaza border, and that's been, I think, essential to Hamas's ability to rearm itself consistently over the past um, two decades. And um, will the military then be trying instead of entering the tunnels, may they try to destroy as many as they can from from above ground? That's the clear preference, and that is what the Israeli military has done every single time before. Now, there's only so much you can do from above ground. As I said, the tunnels are very deep. Uh, Israel doesn't know exactly where all of them are. And of course, there is the civilian part of the equation, in that these tunnels, a lot of them are built under uh, civilian infrastructure in Gaza. So if Israel were to strike these tunnels, as it has done, it likely and, and quite often precipitates collateral damage to uh, is, to Gaza's civilian population and civilian infrastructure. So that's, I th- to be fair to Israel, that is a huge dilemma. If you try to then do something that could be potentially more effective, which is to send your troops into the tunnels, then you are in a completely unknown underground subterranean battlefield with huge risks for Israeli troops, despite very advanced technology. There's also the issue of the hostages, isn't there? And because many of them, we believe, are are underground in the tunnels as well, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a safe assumption that most of the hostages, especially the the high-valued hostages, are in these tunnels, which makes any uh, Israeli operation to target these tunnels much more complex. Mm. Uh, There's a secondary, perhaps even more 
important concern in your piece uh, when it comes to what the uh, Israeli military intelligence is worrying about, which is the the possibility of a of a of a full conflict breaking out on the northern front uh, of the country. And there's uh, perhaps a slightly worrying a part of your piece where you say that many analysts believe that this is pretty much inevitable. Why is that the case? We're certainly in a in an extremely complicated regional uh, scenario at the moment, and that's an understatement for a number of reasons. And then I'll get to the the possibilities of escalation. Clearly, Hamas is armed and backed by Iran. Hamas would not have embarked on such a a, a violent course of action knowing the extent of Israel's retaliation had it not had certain assurances from its Iranian-backed partners, including the Lebanese armed group Hezbollah. Now, Hezbollah has, as was expected, and as it, it, it threatened, it is slowly escalating against Israel. This, in my view, is mainly intended to keep some pressure on Israel and to demonstrate solidarity with Hamas, but without going so far as to precipitate a full escalation, a full war with Israel, which would be disastrous not just for Hezbollah and Lebanon, as we saw during the 2006 war, but also disastrous for northern Israel, given the extent of Hezbollah's military capabilities. Now, in addition to this, we're also seeing Iran mobilizing other uh, militias that that it has sway over. So we've seen Iranian-linked militias in Syria and Iraq actually attack U.S. interests. And the reason they're doing this is because the U.S. has moved two aircraft carriers off the coast of Israel to support Israel, to deter Iran, and threatening to intervene should there be a fuller escalation. And I'll just finish by saying, no one wants full escalation at the moment. So I actually don't think a full regional war is inevitable. However, it is clear that the longer the bloodshed in Gaza goes on, the higher the probability of a full-blown war happening. And then the final point is, I think we're in a very dangerous place where the U.S. is trying to deter Iran by increasing its military forces in the Middle East. Iran is trying to deter the U.S. by also increasing its own asymmetrical warfare against the U.S. via these militias in Iraq and Syria. This is aimed at deterrence. But if we go over the threshold from deterrence into full-blown regional war, then this whole architecture that was met, that's been created over the past few weeks to, to deter warfare suddenly becomes a major catalyst for a really dangerous and uncontrolled war that then sucks in Iran and the US. So this is, I think, a really, really risky situation we're in at the moment. You you mentioned in your piece um, a series of political mistakes that Israel may have made uh, over the last few years, which mean that a, a, a solution for Gaza seems pretty much impossible now in, in political terms. What are some of these big political mistakes as, as you see them over the last few years? Clearly, this tragedy is in part a political failure. And I want to be very clear that nothing can justify Hamas's violence whatsoever, full stop. But at the same time, we need to understand that this is happening in a vacuum. There is a context for for, for where we are today. And that context is a Gaza Strip that has been trapped for over 15 years in an increasingly unsustainable status quo, due in large part to... A, having Hamas rule it, let's be clear about that, but also Israel's imposition of its own siege against Gaza, 
since Hamas took over in 2007, which has restricted Gaza's economy and which has fed an increasingly severe social economic crisis and humanitarian crisis in Gaza. And rather than seek a more sustainable political vision and future for Gaza, successive Israeli governments, but let's also be clear, mostly these are mostly Netanyahu governments, have sought to manage and contain Gaza and its Hamas rulers through a series of ceasefire arrangements. The idea being that Hamas would agree to police other militant groups in Gaza, would agree to maintain calm in exchange for a gradual but still limited relaxation of Israeli restrictions on Gaza. That is the paradigm we've been in for years. I and many people have always thought that that is not sustainable. And the ultimate unsustainability is, in my view, what has led to the to this massive, horrendous eruption of violence. You know, there are obviously other factors, but ultimately this is about a Gaza Strip that has no sustainable future and and Gaza's rulers, Hamas, who have been looking for a way to extricate themselves from that. Well, Hugh, thank you very much indeed for joining me on the edition. Thank you. Thank you. And finally, Fabian Carstairs, who works for the Spectator's digital team, writes for the magazine this week about his surprise at finding himself on a Facebook group called Are We Dating the Same Guy? This is a group that aims to draw attention to the red flag men in the world of online dating in the hope of protecting women. He joins me now along with Flora Gill, freelance journalist who investigated the group for The Times. Fabian, could you start by explaining uh, for listeners who might not be aware what this Facebook group is and then tell your side of the story? How did you end up on there? Yeah, uh, I mean, I feel the group's namesake is, um, is pretty accurate. It's essentially a place where, you know, women can talk with each other, um, kind of bounce things off each other, try to identify if the person they're dating is really dating someone else. I think it extends also to, you know, general bad behavior that might be, you know, might be trending with certain guys. Yeah, it started fairly recently last year in New York and now kind of has spread to 120 sort of subgroups um, targeting like geographical area cities normally. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big mix of content on there. I found out I was on there sort of after a, sort of a summer of hinge dating, really. Um, it started becoming a bit more serious with uh, one girl from Leeds. Uh, unfortunately, I was still also slightly active on the app and uh, ended up meeting up with another girl they were both unaware of each other's existence well sort of long story short I kind of tried to take a step back with the Leeds girl and uh, went to Paris instead with a French girl and um, it kind of blew up on my face quite massively when uh, I came in on uh, Monday morning and a colleague said oh you've been posted on this group you know spent the whole morning in panic and and uh, yeah, she sent me some screenshots and uh, eventually sort of found my way onto the group and uh, found my post on there. So it was a fair cop in this case? Oh, absolutely you... fair cop. Like I even said when I first saw it, I, was, I, pro- I probably deserve it actually, yeah. <laughs> and has that has that experience, do you think, uh, caused you to reflect upon your own dating behaviour? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think, um, well, I know, I think, uh, I, I think I was aware at the time, I think... About the time it happened, I thought to myself, I should actually grow up a bit. But 
I think it kind of really solidifies it when you know you do get caught, and uh, you know you do kind of get your come up. And so, I know I think yeah, it's, it's probably like a, a lesson well learned as well at the same time. Flora, you've written about this group uh, for the Times. In your investigation, did you find that the group is how Fabian describes it? I mean, by the sound of it, Fabian, you do deserve to be on there. But um, uh, was was that the, the is that the case with everyone who is uh, posted up there on the group? Well, I think I think I can understand how it can be quite confronting and shocking to find yourself on the group, even if you do slightly deserve it. I think one of the things that's interesting is the way that we're dating has completely changed. You know, with dating apps, with the, uh, with Tinder, with all these things, in that you used to meet someone probably through someone you know or whether you were at a party or you were at an event and people would be able to give you little almost background checks on a person you could you could ask a friend oh what are they like are they a good guy are they a bad guy and I'm not saying you're a bad guy at all the problem we have now is that there are men on these apps that are completely misleading women particularly into how they are they're presenting themselves in a completely different way and there's no way to validate that date or verify what they're saying and that can be really minor things like someone potentially dating two people at the beginning of a relationship which a lot of people have done but it can also go all the way to people being really problematic I mean there's a lot of people on the group that are reporting men who are dine and dashing or assaulting or being racist or all these other things so I think it's no surprise that a bunch of women have wanted to get together and kind of protect each other having said that there is definitely quite a lot of also just gossiping on the sites which wasn't perhaps the initial aim of the group but uh definitely occurs as well do you think Flora that um even though, as you say, the, the 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 goal of the group, the main goal may be about women's uh, safety, I suppose. But do you think that it, it can go too far in terms of invading the privacy of, of men? Yeah, 100%. 100% it goes too far. And I think, um, I mean, look, if if we were all required to get a complete bill of health from every former person we dated in order to get our next date, I'm not sure any of us would survive. And so... But I think a lot of women know that, that you've got to read read other people's posts with a pinch of salt, you know, just because someone doesn't have a glowing review doesn't mean that they're not necessarily the right person for you. But I mean, men have for for years been saying, you know, we'll do anything to help to, to make women feel safe. Like, what can we do? There are so many good guys compared to how many bad guys there supposedly are. And if the one thing that women are now asking is be okay with a little bit of discomfort with you being posted on a site potentially, I don't think that's that big an ask. Fabian, there's a point Flora made just there, which I thought was extremely interesting about how in old uh, days of dating, uh, before the internet and apps and so on, because they, it was we're talking about smaller um, real world networks of people, people would know things about each other. You know, you would know that rumours that a particular man was a bit of a wrong and, and and so on. So could it be argued that the, the groups such as this group are a, a bit like the sort of technological version of a very old sort of thing, which is, which is um, I'm afraid, a rumour and gossip, but now just on a much larger, more international scale? In some ways, yeah. I know I agree that it's something that's existed since the dawn of time, really. Um, you know, uh, you know, women groups sort of gossiping about um, guys have been overly randy in the tribe or whatever. But I think, you know, 
recently it's not a change of of the way kind of gossip works necessarily it's more that the network has changed so the the idea it remains but instead of you know sharing the gossip with six people you're sharing it with 60,000 so it's it's it, it kind of stops becoming gossip or people talking behind someone's back but rather kind of a public display so it's it's more public shaming rather than gossip in that sense and Flora, I, I wonder, to your knowledge, are there any male equivalents of this sort of a, a group, you know, on Facebook or, or, or anywhere else? Is that no, you... I don't think there are as far as I know, but I can almost guarantee that if there was a male version, it wouldn't be primarily looking out for the safety of men. Yeah. I wish that women didn't need this kind of site. I think that is the ideal scenario, but I don't think a male equivalent would necessarily first and foremost be looking out for, for that that side. Yeah. And also like some people I know some men have found it really, really horrific to find out that they're on it and it's then put them off dating as you deleted all their dating profiles. And also on the other hand, I think it can be quite addictive and dangerous for some women to constantly be on it and looking for constantly checking it. If you an an unfair view of of dating in a way because yeah. you're only seeing all the these negative red flags over and over. So I'm not sure it's particularly healthy to be on it. And uh, Fabian, just just finally, and apologies if this is too personal a question, but does your current partner, who you you do mention in the piece, does she know about your involvement on this page? And if if so, um, what was her reaction? Uh, yeah, no, she does. It was. Um... I actually told her quite early on after it um, happened. I was quite worried about how she'd react. I think, uh, I, you know, I think she was uh, a little bit concerned, especially since she was involved in it as well. I mean, she was actually named in the post by her first name, and I, I think, yeah, I think she's she's okay with it. it the rest of the evening was a bit quiet, but uh, <laughs> but uh, now she understands, and um, you know, she. She's kind of uh, absolutely okay with it. Thank you, Fabian and Flora. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week. Bye.